And so, as Dan has stated, my name is Jordan uh, Washington. Uh, welcome uh, to Central Hope. We are glad that you were able to come and worship with us this morning. And so at the outset, let me just say that the subject matter that we're dealing with is a bit of a grim subject uh, that usually engenders a lot of confusion and speculation. So hopefully this morning uh, we'll be able to clear up at least some of the misconceptions revolving around uh, spiritual warfare. Um, and really the idea uh, behind the choosing of this particular topic is, I don't know about you, but it seems to be a topic that doesn't get touched on very much, very often, right? Like we hear about Satan sprinkled in every now and then, uh, but we don't really hear a lot of exposition on our great adversary, uh, the one who literally exists to target us. And as we prepare to go into Advent season, a season that is supposed to be filled with joy and laughter and family and love and encouragement and appreciation, make no mistake that the great adversary will surely seek to insert himself into the season to disrupt the peace that should surround Christmas, to disrupt the joy that should be accompanied when we spend time with family. And so this morning we will spend uh, our time talking about our great adversary. And so you might have noticed that our text is in part in the book of Revelation. And so obviously uh, we're not going to spend our time talking about uh, different eschatological views. So we're not going to be talking about dispensationalism or historic premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism, uh, any of the lineallisms. Uh, we're not talking about those uh, this morning. But what I will say, though, is in light of recent events that are taking place in Israel, there could be a temptation to be afraid of what's going on in Israel. That the events that are taking place there are somehow marking the end times period begin. And oftentimes this engenders fear. But I would ask you, if you are fearful of the end times, the question would be why? Because the book of Revelation as a whole was written as an encouragement to believers. And the return of Christ should not engender fear in anyone who is a believer. The only people that should be afraid of the return of Christ are people who are not believers. The return of Christ ushers in the long-awaited event that hopefully we are all praying for will happen soon. And that is the return of Christ, the full ushering in of the kingdom of God and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. Where there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sadness. For the Christian, this is what we desire. To depart from this life that is filled with so much sadness and sorrow and misery. And to be in the presence of our Savior forevermore. To enjoy our lives with him for eternity. Amen? And so the book of Revelation is not something to be afraid of. Nor is the return of Christ. But the book of Revelation is written as an encouragement to us. That there is a great reward on the end, on the other side of the Christian life. A reward that far exceeds anything that you could possibly accumulate this side of heaven. And so while part of our text is in Revelation, the main passage that we're actually going to be dealing with is in Ephesians 6. 
beginning in verse 10 and ending in verse 18. And so the first part of Revelation uh, is going to set the stage for the events that we're going to be talking about um, this morning. And so again, one reality that we should never forget is that we do have a very real and very present adversary. And at different times and at different stages of, of my own life and on social media and things like that, I've heard uh, people take a pretty glib approach to Satan. Almost as if he were like some cricket that you could flick off of your shoulder while you're enjoying a croissant at your local bakery. But you need to understand something. That if he were permitted to, he could destroy your life in the matter of moments. And if you don't believe me, let's just consider the life of Job, for example. The book of Job opens up by describing a man who is, uh, has great wealth. He is a righteous man who has a wonderful family. The heavenly host gathers and the Satan makes his way into the presence of the Lord and proposes that he be allowed to tempt Job. And in this temptation, he begins by taking Job's wealth from him. He then proceeds to take Job's children from him. Then he proceeds to take Job's health from him. And if it were not for God explicitly saying you cannot take his life, Satan would surely kill Job. And this is the reality for us as well. If Satan were permitted to, he would kill you. He is a very malicious foe whose very purpose is to wage war on the children of God. And this is what we will see in part in the book of Revelation. And so we must understand that he is more powerful than we are. He is smarter than we are. He is wiser than we are. He is more knowledgeable than we are. And so to not regard this foe as a very serious threat to our lives is to be a living fool. Is to live as a person who doesn't know their left hand from their right. And so as a further disclaimer, there might be things in this sermon that are offensive. Some things that might elicit a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, but as always, if you never are offended when you read your Bible, if you're never challenged when you're reading your Bible, you are not reading your Bible. If whenever you read the Bible, it always agrees with you, you are not reading your Bible. You're reading something else. And so just keep that in mind as we proceed this morning. So before we dive into our text, let us pray. Um, I know Dan prayed already, but there's never too much prayer. So let's pray for the Spirit to help us uh, as we deal with this topic, as we seek to understand ourselves more and the devices of Satan that he brings against us. So if you will, bow your heads and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you uh, for the Sabbath day this day that you have appointed uh, for us to gather, to be in your presence, to worship you corporately, to remember uh, all the things you have done for us and who you are. The promises that are yes and amen in your son, Jesus Christ. 
and the hope that you've given to us. We pray that by the end of our discussion in your scriptures, Lord, that we would leave more alert and more aware that we are in a battle, a cosmic war that has been raging from the beginning, and that we need to ever be vigilant so that we will be able to withstand the assaults from the evil one in our day-to-day lives. We pray and we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to first Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. So beginning in verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And so we see in this passage that there's an entity, a being referred to as a dragon. And this being has come against the woman. And this passage should sound awfully familiar because it parallels that of Genesis 3, 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust and of the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this cosmic battle has been raging since the fall of man. We see that there's enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. We see this almost immediately as Adam and Eve have children. We have one son whose name is Cain and the other who is named Abel. And we see that Abel offered sacrifices to God that were pleasing to him by faith. And we see that Cain did not offer sacrifices in faith. And thus, God was displeased with him. And instead of amending his ways, Cain decided to kill his brother, showing that he was a offspring of the devil, that he would kill his righteous brother, Abel. And we see this pattern continue throughout the scriptures as well. Isaac had two sons as well, Esau and Jacob. um, Esau gave up his birthright to pursue other endeavors, while Jacob would carry on the covenant promises. And so this battle has raged throughout all of human history, that there are a people who are the offspring of Satan, and people who are the offspring of the woman. And these two are in conflict with one another. Further, we see in verses 16 and 17, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring 
on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. These passages teach us that there is an adversary who is actively striving to harm the saints. This foe is a malicious liar and a treacherous villain. He's a master tempter and an expert at drawing the human soul to sin. Satan accomplishes this goal of enticement through various means that are taking place in the culture that we see at large, that take place in our nation, that take place in our city, and that take place in this very church. And so we'll look at a couple of these devices and then at their remedies, which we will see in Ephesians chapter 6. So the first device that Satan uses is by hiding the hook that is in the bait. By hiding the hook that is in the bait. And so the same way that a fisherman puts bait on the hook to catch him, Satan uses this same device. Because of our nature, because of our natural proclivity to sin, we oftentimes do not consider the consequences of our conduct. We don't consider how our sin is both damaging to ourselves and damaging to our loved ones. How these things damage our spouse when we have outbursts of anger. How these things are damaging to our children when we discipline them out of malice and not out of love. Satan hides the hook that is in the bait, leading us to not see the consequences of our sin. The second device Satan uses is to, is to make sin appear to be virtuous. And so this is accomplished by presenting sins like worldliness and lust for material goods as proper husbandry and provision, or gossip as concern for one's friend. Or fighting a culture war in the name of Christ when, in reality, you're just trying to protect your comforts and your way of life. You're not really concerned with the advancement of the kingdom of God. You're truly concerned with avoiding any type of suffering or persecution that will come if the culture is not Christian. So Satan oftentimes makes sin appear virtuous. The third device of the devil is to present God as a God of all mercy and grace. As one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You have no reason to make much of your sin. You have no reason to be really concerned about your sin and about the sin of others. Because God is all gracious and because God is all merciful. And so Satan presents God as all grace and all mercy and neglecting the fact that God is also just and righteous and that there is a penalty for sin, that there are consequences, eternal consequences for sin. The fourth device is by leading men to continually compare themselves to those who have been deemed worse than they are. And we see this in the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
So we see that the Pharisee stands far off and he says to God, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, that I am not wicked and unjust. And so we continually compare ourselves to whatever tribe that is typically not ours, whether that be Democrats. I thank you, God, that I'm not like one of them who is foolish and does not know what they ought to do or how they ought to live. Or by comparing yourselves to Republicans. I thank you, God, that I do not claim to be a part of the moral majority, that I'm not sitting on my pedestal, am haughty and self-righteous. And so we're enticed to sin because we're continually comparing ourselves to whoever is deemed worse than we are. Finally, the fifth device Satan uses is to keep men from attending to holy duties by presenting them as too difficult. By keeping men from attending to holy duties by presenting them as too difficult. You will benefit much more if you leave off from your reading to watch your favorite show on Netflix. You'll find more rest if you leave off praying to go do something that you find enjoyable. Be it golf or social media or any other leisurely thing that you can think of, you'll find a lot more rest if you just leave off prayer and just go do something that you find enjoyable. In our culture that is filled with luxury and rest in the name of self-care, we often leave off those duties that actually would bring us rest and would bring care for our souls. These are but a few of Satan's many devices that he uses to entice men and women to sin. And so what are the remedies to these devices? With all of this, what can we actually do to defend ourselves against our adversary who is more powerful than we are, who is more cunning than we are? Well, we will find our remedies in Ephesians chapter 6. And so if you will turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all 
the saints. And so one of the things that we see immediately in this passage is how Paul categorizes our battle. And so he categorizes our battle as not against flesh and blood. And so in a very real reality, we should not be raging war against other people. And again, like, I understand that there's a little bit of nuance that, that goes into that, but dis, dismiss the nuance for, for a moment and understand that the way that Paul categorizes our battle is against the cosmic powers. And in part of this, we experience this hardship, this conflict with the offspring of Satan because we live in a fallen world. And being in a fallen world, there is much hardship and conflict that is accompanied by that. But Paul tells us that our real adversary is in the spiritual realm. Our real adversary is in the heavenly places. Paul, previously in the letter to the Ephesians, reminds the Ephesians that they too once walked in darkness. The darkness that all of us were born into. Not knowing the truth of God until God graciously revealed himself to us. But our battle is against the prince of the power of the air, the one who has dominion over this world underneath Christ's feet, of course. But that is where our real battle lies, against the spiritual forces that are raging against us. And so a note about Satan, right? Because... There might be a, a temptation in that, and I've heard this in, in the past, right? You, you have a person in one part of the world saying that Satan is coming against him, and then another person in another part of the world is saying that Satan is coming against him, and know that Satan is not omnipresent, that he is not in all places at all times. So again, think back to the book of Job. When God addresses Satan, he says, where have you come from? And he says, I was going to and fro upon the earth. So Satan is not in all places at all times. But the Bible also shows us, both in the book of Isaiah and in the Revelation passage that we just read, that Satan took a third of the heavenly host with him. And so while Satan might not be in all places at all times, he certainly has his minions, his angels that are going to and fro, seeking whom they may also devour. Right, we, we see this pretty, even though it's a fiction book, uh, I think a good depiction of what this looks like is in C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters. One of the things we see in this book is that a senior tempter is advising a new tempter on how to influence the affairs of men, how to get into their lives and entice them to sin. Again, while this is a fiction book, it should go without saying that looking in this passage, we see that there is a very present reality in which Satan's minions are, in fact, behaving in such a manner, seeking to disrupt the peace and the joy of Christians, seeking to keep those who are non-Christians underneath their influence and prevent them, as C.S. Lewis would put it, as coming to the enemy. The enemy being 
God in heaven. That, that one took a little bit to get used to. But our battle is against the spiritually, the spiritual places. And contrary to our nature, right, we tend to like to white knuckle it, to buckle down and do things in our own strength. But contrary to this, Paul advises us to be strong, not in ourselves, but to be strong in the Lord. And oftentimes this could be used as a cliche phrase that really has no meaning. But here Paul tells us exactly what it means to be strong in the Lord. And it begins by putting on the full armor of God. And notice that he says you must put on the full armor of God. In the same way that a soldier would not go into battle without fully putting on his armor, you cannot hope to succeed against Satan without putting on all the pieces. If you leave one piece off on the armor, you're exposed in that area. And so you must put on the full armor of God. And the first piece of the armor is the belt of truth. The Christian must be an individual who not only knows the truth, but believes the truth. It doesn't do you any good just to know the truth. You must believe it. You must believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Or else when you commit sin, you will flee from God instead of coming to him. You must believe the truth. You must believe that you have been adopted into the family of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must believe that you are fully justified, that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for in full, and that nothing can take you away from the love of God that he has for you in Christ Jesus. You must believe it. The second piece of the armor is directly related to the first, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. Truth and holiness must go together. Orthodoxy, which is right doctrine, and orthopraxy, which is, which is right practice, must go together. If you have the orthodoxy without the orthopraxy, you are merely a hypocrite. And if you have the orthopraxy without the orthodoxy, you are misguided. The truth must go with righteousness. They are twins. They have to go together. So first you put on the belt of righteousness. Second, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. The third piece of armor is to have the shoes that are fitted for you, which is the gospel itself the saving knowledge of the lord and savior jesus christ the reality that you were commanded by god to live perfectly in this world and that you failed and not only failed a little bit but failed miserably at that and then instead of the penalty for sin being counted to you by the perfect life of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you should have lived 
That by the death of Jesus Christ, dying the death that you should have died, and by his triumphant resurrection from the grave on the third day, you are reconciled to God. That is the gospel. And there are a lot of different benefits that I don't have time to, to go through here with you now. But one of the most precious of, well, I guess I can't really say most precious. They're all precious. But one, one that is particularly precious is the reality of your adoption. That at one point, you were not a part of God's family. But because of repentance and faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been purchased and you belong to God. That is the gospel message. That you are his child. The apple of his eye. That amongst all the billions of people that live in the world currently and who have lived throughout human history and who will live in the future if the world continues, God loves you as his special possession. That because he is attending to the needs of another child does not mean that he has less time for you. That is the gospel. And we have to put it on. And then finally, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Again, it does you no good just to know the truth. You have to believe and you have to trust in who God has promised himself to be to you. That he is a loving father who cares about you, who provides for you, not always in the ways that you want, but he provides for you always in the ways that you need. That he is never far from you. That because of the priesthood of Christ, the throne room of God is always accessible to you. So in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, be it uh, you are prospering in the moment or you are poor. Whether you have great sorrow or great joy, whether you are happy or sad in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And why is this? So that you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Again, as I've stated, he is a malicious foe. He will use anything and everything to get at you. Whether it be a secret sin to keep you from stepping into the light and returning unto God. Whether it be some trauma that you have experienced in your own life in which he seeks to convince you that no one actually loves you or cares about you. He uses everything to harm us. We must take up the shield of faith so that we can extinguish these darts that he shoots at us continually. Take up the helmet of salvation. Again, I don't have time to, to discuss all the, the benefits and implications of, of what this means. But one thing in particular that we must remember is that this is not our home. So the reason the sermon is entitled The Pilgrim's Malicious Foe is to remind us that we are pilgrims. 
that as Peter states in 1 Peter, we are sojourners who are passing through this life to something greater, the promised land, an inheritance that no one has seen, no eye has seen and no ear has heard, the great things that await the people of God. We must put on the helmet of salvation. Next, how do we go on the attack? So most of these pieces up to this point, all of these pieces up to this point, have been about defense. But how do we attack? Well, it's by the sword of the Spirit. And again, there's no need to be incredibly confused about any you know, mystical, magical nature of the Spirit because he tells us quite plainly that the sword of the Spirit is the very word of God. Again, we must know the truth. We must continue to grow in our knowledge of who God is and what he has done for us. Again, we are in war with the adversary. We have to know what the Bible says so that when Satan uses scripture, we know how to distinguish the truth from a lie. If you look at the temptation of Eve and if you look at the temptation of Jesus, one thing that you notice is Satan came with the word of God. Again, when you read through the Synoptic Gospels, some of the first people to recognize Jesus as the Christ were not people. They were demons. So Satan knows the word of God. He knows the instructions that you have been given. And he will present that to you in a twisted form. And so you must know the word of God. You must know it. That you can fight against his attacks. Lastly, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Pleading with God for help in your time of trial. Interceding for your loved ones. Interceding for people in this church. Interceding for our brothers and sisters across the waters who are dealing with far more persecution than we are. But in all prayers, praying with supplication. To the end, stay alert. A man is never more in danger than when he thinks himself secure. So you must be alert to the reality of the battle that you are facing every day. That you may be able to persevere unto the end. Again, making supplication for all of the saints. So not just praying for yourselves, not just praying for your family, but for praying for all the people of God. Considering their trials and their tribulations that they are going through. And praying that they continually put on the armor of God every day that they wake up so that they will be able to stand against the devil's schemes and persevere unto the end. In closing, be alert. Know that you have an adversary who is not your friend. As much as he might present himself to you as an angel of light, he is not on your team. He seeks to kill and destroy the people of God. So be alert.
Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against him. Remember the gospel. Remember the promises that are yes and amen to you in the Son, Jesus Christ. Learn the promises that are yours, that are found in the scriptures. Read about the tender love and care of our Heavenly Father. Meditate and remember how he has preserved you in your own life. Because none of us would have made it this far if it were not for him. Recall those things when you go into the battle. That you may remember that God has been faithful before and he will be faithful again. That he will continue to be faithful always and forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word, the instruction that you've provided to us in it, that by it we are made aware and made alert of our great adversary who comes against your people to kill and destroy. We give thanks to you that our Savior is not only our Savior, but is our Lord and King who presently reigns at your right hand. That in all things, no matter what may come against us in this life, ultimately, Lord, we have the victory because your son has accomplished that victory. We pray that as we go into the Advent season that we would be alert to the many enticements that Satan will surely put before us to disrupt our peace, disrupt our joy, disrupt our enjoyment of you and your many blessings. We pray as we prepare for Thanksgiving that we would be thankful, that we would forget our trials and our tribulations and the hardships that have accompanied us this year, and that we would remember that you are always a good God, that you care for us and that you love us, and that there are untold riches that are at your right hand when your son returns. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.